you please turn with me in your Bibles now to Job chapter 9. Back in chapter 8, Bildad was speaking to Job, Bildad being one of Job's so-called friends. Later, we refer to them as him and his other two friends as miserable comforters, but Bildad spoke in uh, chapter 8, and now in chapters 9 and 10, Joab is answering, although we believe that he's not necessarily just answering Bildad, but also um, answering Eliphaz, who is also there, who has earlier spoken. So Joab is replying, and uh, this morning we are going to consider uh, the first part of that reply, verses 1 through 13, Job chapter 9. Did I say? Okay. I meant to say Job. If I said something else, um, we're in Job chapter 9, verses 1 through 13. Then Job answered and said, Truly I know that it is so. But how can a man be in the right before God? If one wished to contend with him, one could not answer him once in a thousand times. He is wise in heart and mighty in strength, who has hardened himself against him and succeeded. He who removes mountains and they know it not, when he overturns them in his anger, who shakes the earth out of its place and its pillars tremble, commands the sun and it does not rise, who seals up the stars, who alone stretched out the heavens and trampled the waves of the sea, who made the bear and the orion, the pleiades and the chambers of the south, who does great things beyond searching out and marvelous things beyond number. Behold, he passes by me and I see him not. He moves on, but I do not perceive him. Behold, he snatches away. Who can turn him back? Who will say to him, what are you doing? God will not turn back his anger. Beneath him bowed the helpers of Rahab. And I want to keep reading just to give a little bit more context. He goes on to say, How then can I answer him, choosing my words with him? Though I am in the right, I cannot answer him. I must appeal for mercy to my accuser. If I summoned him and he answered me, I would not believe he was listening to my voice. For he crushes me with a tempest and multiplies my wounds without cause. He will not let me get my breath, but fills me with bitterness. If it is a contest of strength, behold, he is mighty. If it is a matter of justice, who can summon him? Though I am in the right, my own mouth would condemn me. Though I am blameless, he would prove me perverse. I am blameless. I regard not myself. I loathe my life. It is all one. Therefore, I say, he destroys both the blameless and the wicked. When disaster brings sudden death, he mocks at the calamity of the innocent. The earth is given into the hand of the wicked. He covers the faces of its judges. If it is not he, who then is it? It's possible for believers who love God and are in a right relationship with him to say wrong things about him and to be on some level mixed up spiritually. Our knowledge of God is not going to be perfect in this life, no matter how determined we are to know God and his truth. Because God is so far above us and really beyond our understanding, we are not going to fully comprehend him and his ways with us. And we need to remember this because there is a tendency for us to take on certain beliefs about God that we consider to be absolute truth, but they are not based solidly in scripture. Some are based simply on logical arguments. And I would 
remind you that logic is not a reliable guide to absolute truth. When trying to establish truth, there are often nuances and exceptions to principles that need to be taken into consideration for us to really understand what is going on and to make sure that we are operating in the realm of truth. For example, we might start with the premise that hurting people is bad and therefore wrong. I can imagine even someone adamantly arguing this point. Indeed, this seems to be directly related to the moral principle that currently guides our society as our society has become unmoored from the standard of the Bible. For our society defines what is good as that which helps rather than hurts people. And logic would say that based on the premises that what is good is what helps rather than hurts people, and since what is bad is the opposite of good, we conclude that then that what is bad doesn't help but hurts people. It seems that basically we have as a society defined good and bad in relation to whether something hurts or helps people. And having accepted that conclusion, someone might say, well, doctors hurt people, and therefore they are bad. And uh, the discerning person would admit doctors don't hurt people all the time and in everything they do, but at one time or another, all doctors do hurt people. After all, doctors are known to inflict pain. They cut people with scalpels, they poke them with needles, they do things inevitably that make people cry and scream out in pain. If hurting people is bad, then doctors are bad. The problem is we believe doctors are generally good people. Certainly there are bad doctors, but as a profession and as a whole, we would argue that doctors are not bad. They are good, but wasn't it pointed out they hurt people? Well, yes, and yet we still want to say they are good. Well, how or why? Well, because while hurting people in and of itself is not good, it's not wrong to hurt people if they are hurt in order to do them good. For example, a doctor pokes a patient with a needle. Now, if the only reason he did that was to hurt people and to inflict pain, he would be a bad person. But when he inflicts pain because breaking the skin and inserting a needle is the best way to administer medicine that the patient needs, then we would say his hurting the patient serves a good purpose. If a doctor cuts a patient's chest open in order to stop internal bleeding or to do a heart surgery to to save his life, we would say the hurting is for a good cause. So in the end, it is much too simplistic to say hurting people is wrong. The purpose of hurting people is to hurt them, then yes, hurting is wrong. But if the purpose of hurting people is to do them good, then the hurting is actually good. And this is similar to what Job and his friends are going through and and as they're trying to understand the relationship to God and his suffering and are just making these very simplistic arguments that really aren't taking in the full scope of everything involved. It's interesting that Job begins his reply to Bildad there in chapter 9, verse 2, by saying, truly I know that it is so. So take that in for a moment. He's saying he agrees with Bildad. And you might be surprised by that, but remember that Bildad and Eliphaz have said things that on the surface are right, things that Job and even we can agree with. For one thing, Job and all of his friends so far are agreeing that God is sovereign in Job's suffering. No one has been trying to argue that Satan has come against Job, against the will of God. 
None is trying to say, as some prosperity gospel people today do, that Satan and God are, are fighting it out and it's uncertain who's going to win. None is saying, Job, God wants you to be healthy. He wants you to be prosperous. It's, it's not his will that you experience what's happening. None are saying that. All agree that God is ultimately the one who has sent the disasters that have come upon Job. All also agree that it is then God who can turn things around. And so all are agreed on this basic biblical premise that nothing that happens in this world is outside of the plan and will of God. We know that these men are right because we know that God explicitly gave Satan permission to do the things that he has done against Job. And uh, God not only could have stopped Satan at any time, he actually chose to give Satan permission to bring these things into Job's life. All of the men are also in agreement that God is just. He is a God who is morally good. He is upright. He has a law of righteousness, of righteous requirements. And as judge punishes evil and rewards the righteous, all disobedience to the law of God will be punished, they would say. All those who are righteous will be rewarded, they would say. So far, all are in agreement. What they do not agree on is the reason why God is sending hardships to Job. Eliphaz and Bildad are arguing that Job is being punished for sin, and the explanation is a rather simple one. It's a matter of logic. God is just, and as a just God, he punishes wickedness. Job is clearly being punished by God, therefore he is wicked. In their minds, according to their system of belief and logic, there's no way around it. And no matter what then Job says about his being right with God, it just simply, in their minds, is not possible. Job must be a terrible sinner because God in his justice would not treat a godly believer like he is treating Job. That's the logical argument that Job's friends insist on following. And Job agrees to a point. He agrees that God is just. He also knows that God punishes the wicked and blesses the righteous. But the problem for Job is that he knows he isn't a wicked man deserving the kind of punishment that he has received. He knows he is a righteous man who is blameless and upright. He knows in his heart that he fears God. And it's not that he thinks himself to be better than others. It's not that he's, he thinks of himself as personally worthy of God's favor. He is a man of faith, which means that he knows his own lack of righteousness. He has asked God to pardon his sins. He has asked God to justify him on the basis of the atoning work of the coming Christ. And I base that on the fact that the scriptures itself say that Job was a man of faith. He was righteous. The only conclusion Job can reach is that since he is not a wicked unbeliever and is being punished anyway, God must not be just. That would seem to be the only logical conclusion to reach. Either Job is a terrible sinner or God is unjust. It seems that one of these statements has to be true, but in reality, neither is correct. Thankfully, Job doesn't straight out accuse God of being unjust, but we can see in what he says in his response to Bildad that this is exactly what he's wrestling with. He actually does, in, in an indirect way, accuse God of being unjust because there doesn't seem to be any other conclusion to reach. Meanwhile, Job does genuinely want to understand what is going on. He, he realizes there's got to be some explanation, but so far he can't see his way through it. 
And so he goes to God and he raises questions, he raises concerns out of a genuine desire to understand why it is that God who is just would make him suffer as he has. Now at some point in his words here, perhaps it's even occurring here in in chapter 9, but or at least later, Job does go too far. He as a mere man demands an explanation from the sovereign God of the universe, and that is folly. And he oversteps his bounds. It's one thing to try to understand and to humbly inquire about God's ways with us. It's another thing for us to imagine that we can call God to account. That we must never do. And with these introductory thoughts in mind, let's consider what Job says here in chapter 9 as he wrestles with God. And I want to do this in the way of highlighting the questions that Job raises. And there's a question that comes up right away in verse 2. The question that Job asks is, but how can a man be in the right before God? Job has just said he agrees with Bildad. He says, truly, I know that it is so. Job has just said he agrees with Bildad about being a God of justice. But if God is just in the way that Bildad and Eliphaz have just described, Job wonders out loud, how can a man be in the right before God? Is it ever possible to be in the right with God? Can a sinner be justified in the sight of God? Job senses that something is awry with a system that says that even believers must be punished for sin. This would seem to say it's impossible really then for a sinner to be justified in the sight of God. And that Job refuses to believe. So Job is contradicting really what Eliphaz said back in chapter 4, 17. Um, If you remember back that far, back then Eliphaz was relating to Job a dream in which this mysterious figure appeared and this figure spoke and these were the words, can mortal man be in the right before God? Can a man be pure before his maker? Eliphaz brought up these rhetorical questions, apparently believing that the answer is no. And like Job must have done, we also wrestled with, then what is Eliphaz, what is he saying by raising these questions? We wonder if Eliphaz is denying justification by faith, which if he is, then we should be quick to disagree with him. If, on the other hand, he means that in this life we are always going to sin and can never claim to be undeserving of tribulations, then he is basically correct. If there was no sin, including the sin of Adam, there would be no suffering. And so what is being raised is this age-old issue of being right with God in terms of justification while also still sinning and needing sanctification and then how suffering fits into this. If I am right with God in justification, then all of the punishment that my sin deserves has been forgiven. And yet, as those who still sin, we can't claim to be utterly undeserving of trials and tribulations. We may experience hardships in response to sin because God is disciplining us. That could could be what's going on. But it's important to understand that by discipline or chastisement, we're talking about something that is different than punishment. Discipline or chastisement is not about making you suffer in order to pay the debt of your sin. Discipline or chastisement is actually only possible for a sinner who is justified 
in the sight of God. In fact, justification is what makes it possible for the hardships of discipline or chastisement to be about love. Um, We're talking about a tough love, a love that is designed to get the sinner to stop the path that he is on. The goal being that you and I would then evaluate what we're doing against God. And the goal in such chastisement is a loving one. It's to turn us back to the paths of righteousness. And understand that this love is not going to be overly harsh and is only going to involve enough discipline to turn us. And again, it's not about punishment. It's not about God unleashing wrath. It's about God giving us as his dear children that he loves hardships to wake us up spiritually for our good. Only as much as is needed to get our attention, only as much as is needed to humble us is what God is going to bring. And so now then think about Job and how much he has lost. He's lost lost his livelihood. He's lost ten children and now his health. And if this is punishment... If this is about making Job pay for his sins, then Job is clearly not justified in God's sight. If this is discipline, then Job must be straying far from God. If such a harsh response is needed to help him, he must be in a very terrible state spiritually. He must have hardened his heart systematically and thoroughly toward God for quite some time. A loving father such as God isn't going to bring the hammers of discipline down in an extreme way on his children unless there is a pattern of in-your-face rebellion in which the sinner has not responded to milder measures first. Job knows, and we know, that this is not what is happening to Job. And again, to get to Job's point, he rejects Eliphaz's idea that there is no such thing as being right with God. No, Job believes there is justification by faith. And my take on Eliphaz is that he believes, like what we would call Arminians today, that you can be justified by faith as you repent of sin, but because we continue to sin, they say we can lose our justification, and we can lose our justification moment by moment. The Armenian says that as believers, we go in and out of justification, being justified as we repent, but then falling out of that justification as we sin yet again. And a Job, and Job, according to Eliphaz, then is in, in, in the stage of needing justification, and he must have messed up royally. Job, contrary-wise, believes that he's right with God. He's asked God for forgiveness. He believes that he is in a covenant relationship with God of love, that's not going to suddenly become adversarial because he has sinned. While he is not perfect, his hope of being right with God is based on faith in the Messiah to come. His his confidence is not based on his performance day by day. His hope of being right with God is not based on how well he is obeying or how well he's repenting. For Job's friends, being right with God means experiencing nothing but God's blessings every moment in a life of ease and comfort. And so if you don't have these things, you must not be right with God. The only way to be right with God is to repent of sin. But what if, like Job, you've done this and you're still experiencing trials? Job understands and basically agrees with the basic principles of God's justice and of man being a sinner. But for him, the great question is, how can a man be in the right before God? How can this take place in your system, Eliphaz and Bildad? For I'm a man who has repented of sin. 
And in this case, I'm not a rebellious sinner who needs to be hammered by God into, into submission. So how does this fit into your system? I can't see how a person can be in the right before God according to your system. This really is the important question and issue. And so Job begins in the right place. And what Job goes on to describe is this quandary that he is in. How does he prove his innocence to his friends? How does he force them to see the inadequacy of their system? And yet at the same time, he doesn't fully understand what's going on. How is what is happening to him just? And so what he begins to to think about is how he would like to have time in court with God. This seems to be the only way to get things sorted out, to get things figured out. At the same time, he can't understand really how that would be fruitful. Notice verse 3, if one wished to contend with him, one could not answer him once in a thousand times. And that word contend is the technical term for conducting a lawsuit. And so the language that Job uses here is courtroom language. As you probably noticed as I read past chapter, uh, as I read past verse 13, there's a lot more language that you can recognize clearly as being courtroom language, where Job is hoping that he can have some kind of a meeting with God in the context of a court. So this tells us that Job is primarily wrestling with the justice of God in the context of all that is happening with him. He wants to reconcile what is happening with God's justice. At the same time, Job can't see how it could possibly work to take God to court. For all, as Job remarks there in verse 3, one could not answer him in a thousand times. As I studied that verse and read the commentaries, it's unclear really who is the defendant and who is the plaintiff. The idea is that Job, as plaintiff, brings God to court as the defendant, then that would, it would mean here that Job understands that God is not going to answer one charge in a thousand. God is not going to be summoned to court. He's not going to allow himself to come under man's scrutiny. You could ask him a thousand different questions. He's not going to answer a single one. And if that's the perspective, then Job is correct. And yet, what does he end up doing? Well, he keeps pressing this desire to be given the chance to prove in God's court that he's in the right. And in the end, Job contradicts himself by demanding that God explain himself. In the end, he acts like a plaintiff coming against God. And so one explanation for Job 3, verse 3 here has, um, uh, one explanation for verse 3 has Job contemplating the folly of summoning God to court, and that certainly is biblical. And yet there's another understanding that's also possible, another understanding of verse 3 that has been defended by others who believe that the idea is that God as plaintiff brings the defendant Job to court in order to accuse Job of sin and to uphold his justice in punishing Job. Job can imagine himself inclined to speak in his defense against God, and yet what is he going to say in defense? If God were to bring you to court with a charge and you believe that you are in the right and that God is wrong, what would you say even even once in a thousand times to defend yourself? In other words, if there were a thousand court cases where God comes against you accusing you of something, are you really going to defend yourself? Do you not realize 
what such a defense would entail? It would require you to say that God is wrong. His charge against you could be wrong only because he has charged you with knowing uh, with something knowingly unjust, which casts dispersions on God's holy character, or because he didn't investigate the matter and unknowingly was unjust in his accusation, which would cast dispersions on his knowledge and wisdom. Ultimately, for Job to bring God to court would require him to confront imperfections in God. And Job realizes that's foolish and dangerous and ultimately impossible. If we know anything of God, his holiness, his goodness, his knowledge, his, his justice, his wisdom, his truth, his power, his perfection, there's no way that we are ever going to defend ourselves in a way in which we accuse God of doing something wrong. The next question that Job asks specifically lays out a reason why it would be crazy to think that you could challenge God in a lawsuit. Because one just needs to consider whom you would be taking to court. Job asks in verse 12, Behold, he snatches away. Who can turn him back? Who will say to him, What are you doing? And the force of these questions is to say that God is infinitely above us in power. We're not going to turn him back from doing what he thinks is right. And you and I don't even have the right to ask him why he does what he does, especially to ask him, as Job puts it, what are you doing? The force of that question is to ask God, what in the world do you think you're doing? As though God is doing something inappropriate and we're calling him to task. Such a questioning of God is inappropriate. And this set of questions comes right after the section of verses 4 through 11, where Job has just described the absolutely sovereign, independent God who runs this world, his world, according to how he sees fit. And what stands out in Job's description of God is that in all of the powerful, wonderful things that God does in creation, it's not all pleasant and orderly. He is, of course, the creator. He originally put all things in place, and in general, he created a world of safe habitation. There's a rocky crust upon which dry land confidently rests, and from which mountains protrude. The seas are contained within boundaries that God has set in place in order to preserve the dry land. There's the daily rising and setting of the sun. The stars of the heavens are in these orderly patterns of constellations that even people in Job's day were able to recognize. They could tell that this was a world of organization and reliability as the seasons of time pass by. Yet nevertheless, ever since the fall, this creation also gives evidence of the curse. Job refers in verse 5 to God overturning the mountains in his anger. And the words, and they know it, may mean that God can level mountains so suddenly and unexpectedly that it's done before anyone even knows what is happening. In other words, to, uh, to, for God to level entire mountain ranges, that's as nothing for him to do. Verse 6 describes God shaking the earth with an earthquake so that the very foundations or pillars of the earth tremble, that nothing is safe. Everything and everyone is vulnerable to being leveled and swallowed up by the earth. While the sun typically rises and, and sets in this daily pattern, there have been times in which the earth has been supernaturally plagued with darkness. 
such as the Egyptian plague of darkness or when God caused the sun to stop for Joshua. There also may be here reference to clouds, to storms, to eclipses that God can orchestrate to bring darkness. He can even seal up the stars in the sense of of closing off their light from our view, whether through clouds or through destruction, so that they no longer give off light. As Job will realize anew later, God's operation in creation is a sure sign of his wisdom and might. And Job begins, in fact, this section. Notice verse 4, he states, He is wise in heart and mighty in strength. And as we explore any aspect of creation, any understanding of God as creator and sustainer, we conclude again and again, as Job did, that our God, this is verse 10, does great things beyond searching out and marvelous things beyond number. Well, what's Job's point in this section? Verse 4b summarizes it well. Who has hardened himself against him and succeeded? Or that we could translate it this way. Who has stood up against him and survived? The wisdom and power that God has revealed in creation shows that he truly knows all that is going on in this world. And there's nothing that's going to oppose him or even challenge him. Is Satan going to challenge him, oppose him? How, that, that's laughable. Uh, us, are we going to challenge him? Are we going to stand up to him and oppose him? Even more laughable. And Job describes in verse 11, in fact, how powerless and how small he feels in comparison to God. Behold, he passes by me and I see him not. He moves on but I do not perceive him. He's talking about how God is involved in creation in a way that is totally invisible. In fact, believing in God as creator and sustainer of this earth is a matter of faith. Hebrews 11:3 says, By faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. So it is by faith we know with absolute certainty that God is sovereignly at work in this world. We can't see him working. We don't see his government. We don't hear the conversations that he has with Satan in the courts of heaven. But we know he is active and we know that his rule over this world is a real thing that is going on all the time even though we can't see him. But his invisibility also means that we don't have the opportunity to challenge God on any level. He doesn't consult us before he does what he does. We don't have opportunities to meet with God and to suggest to him what we think he ought, to suggest to him what we think he ought to do as though we can guide him. He's active all around us and yet we have nothing to do with it. All we can do is experience what he decides for us. And if he snatches away, as verse 12 says, That is, if he takes things away from us, like for Job it was his possessions, his children, his health, whatever it may be that God decides to snatch from us, who can turn him back? Can we stop him? Of course not. The the very idea is ludicrous. No one can rightly call him to account and say, what are you doing? Men arrogantly do this, But how can we rightly do this when we don't even have close to the wisdom of God who created and now governs all things? He operates in the realm of the invisible. He knows far more about what's going on in our world and in our lives than we could ever possibly know. Job is right. 
but this doesn't change the difficulty for him as it pertains to his experience of what seems like God's anger against him. In verse 13, Job applies his knowledge of God by saying, God will not turn back his anger. Beneath him bowed the helpers of Rahab. The second part of that verse is a rather literal translation of the Hebrew. Beneath him bowed the helpers of Rahab. Rahab refers either to some terrible sea creature or to Egypt. There are a number of places in the Bible where Egypt is called Rahab which makes sense if Rahab stands for something evil that is then applied to Egypt. So likely, as I see it, Rahab first was the name for some great sea creature that terrorized people that came to represent the forces of evil and then became a symbol of any people who become agents of evil like Egypt. Some translations actually have here, instead of Rahab, simply proud helpers. So that this word Rahab is thought to mean anyone who proudly stands in opposition to God. And this idea of helpers is that no matter what the proud evil look to for help, whether they're looking to the strength of certain people, whether leaders or armies or wise men or counselors, or whether it's the strength of wealth or talents or technology, these helpers of the forces of evil are of no account to God who can easily bring them in submission to his purposes. The point is that if man becomes an instrument of evil and thus rightly comes under God's anger, God is not going to be turned back from his vengeance. He is not going to be stopped. So where does this leave Job? Job feels as though he is an object of God's anger. And he knows that if God decides to judge us as sinners, then there's nothing we can do to turn him back. His justice will be served. There's no creature capable of stopping him. And for Job, this means that if God has determined that he is going to be punished, there is nothing he can do to challenge him. At the same time, Job, by faith, has asked God to pardon his sins. By faith, he has received the good news that concerns the coming Christ, which says that those who trust in him are justified in the sight of God, that they are declared righteous, they are declared innocent, they are declared to be unworthy of judicial punishment. And scripture tells us that Job was righteous, which means that God is not actually angry with Job as much as it looks that way and feels that way. Well, what about then discipline? Well, Job doesn't know of gross sin in his life. He knows he's not a helper of Rahab. But that seems to be how God is treating him. And so what can Job do? That is his struggle. We know so much more as New Testament believers that don't you feel like you just want to rush forward and you want to offer advice, you want to offer counsel to Job. We want to tell him that suffering is not incompatible with justification and that the purposes of of, uh, suffering are not just punishment and discipline. Those are not just the only two categories that explain suffering But Job knows enough, and he's right about certain things. When God is determined to punish sin, there is nothing we can do to turn him back. But it's not determined by God that all of us suffer for sin. That's why he sent Jesus. And the good news is that he doesn't extend his anger toward those who don't deserve it. Job and his friends are right to insist on God being just But the beauty of the gospel is that God has made it possible for our sins to be punished so that all of the justice that we deserve is satisfied. 
That is what Jesus has done for us by taking legal responsibility for our sin, suffering and dying on the cross. He has made it possible for sinners to be right with him. And so what do Job and his friends really need to do? Well, rather than questioning God's justice and Job's suffering, they ought to be questioning the notion that all suffering is for sin. The truth that seems to elude Job and his friends is that righteous and holy people can suffer and sometimes do suffer when it has nothing to do with being punished for your sins. They recognize that there is a problem, but they're not looking in the right direction for the right answer. And let us not forget that we have a foolish tendency to think that we have everything figured out. The truth is that often our concepts of God and the world are narrow, they are incomplete which means we need to do two things. First of all, we need to be constantly challenging our thinking, building our thinking upon the truths of God's word. And second, we need to constantly remind ourselves that God is so infinitely above us, we're never going to fully comprehend him. We're not going to fully comprehend the world he has made and even ourselves in relation to it all, and yet that's okay. You have a God who can be trusted You have a God who does justify sinners. He doesn't come in anger ever against you who are justified in his sight by faith in Christ. Anything then that you experience that doesn't seem to fit with the gospel of grace in the Lord Jesus Christ, this sense that it doesn't fit is just due to your limited understanding. It's not a flaw in God not a flaw in the gospel. Amen. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we do thank you for justification. We thank you, Father, that even as a just God, you have chosen to satisfy that justice through the punishment of your Son. We pray, Father, that as we contemplate the things that are going on in our lives, that we would see that it is so easy for us, as Job and his friends did, to, to think so narrowly and, and, and really incompletely, thinking that there are only two possibilities when really there are other possibilities to explain suffering. Father, may we recognize that our thinking needs to be constantly molded by your word. There are also times when we simply just need to trust you, to trust that there is an answer, even though it may not be immediately clear to us. Father, we thank you that there is justification. We thank you that we are not being ever punished for our sins as those who trust in Christ. Um, We thank you for discipline, if that's what we are experiencing as we suffer, um, because we know that that's sent in love to bless us. But Father, for any other kind of suffering, we pray that we would recognize that there are purposes in it, but it's not punishment. And so may we trust you, may we have hope, And uh, Father, we thank you that there is also a day when all of this experience of hardships will end as you bring us to be with you. Father, we pray these things with thanksgiving in Christ's name. Amen.